Salutations. Uh, my name is Pastor Ransom Kenton, the pastor here at Grace Presbyterian Church, and I'm so thankful you've joined us this morning. We are continuing in our series in First and Second Kings through the summer. We find ourselves in First Kings 17. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter uh, this morning. I'm only going to read verses 8 through 16 as kind of a representative passage. And so please follow along with me as I read this uh, section of Scripture to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Again, we're in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. Let's take a look. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he, this is Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord, he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, this morning I ask a blessing on your mighty and powerful word. I pray that it goes out into this world and that it does not fall on deaf ears. Yet, Lord, I pray instead that it falls on uh, open ears and uh, fertile hearts. Lord, I pray this morning that we would uh, hear the truth of who you are, and no matter what situation we find ourselves, we would affirm it to be true and praise your name because of it. Thank you for my church. Thank you for calling me to preach the word. Thank you for your kindness and all those things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So, last week we talked about King Jeroboam. He's the first king of the kingdom of Israel, so the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, everyone to refer to it. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> Things in Israel are spinning out of control. Spinning out of control. Jeroboam uh, um, was king of over Israel for about 22 years. And uh, so where we stand now, the beginning of 1 Kings 17, 40 or so years have passed. In that time, in about 40 years worth of time, uh, we are on our fourth royal family for the northern kingdom. Of the six kings that have ruled since Jeroboam, two of them have ruled only for two years. One for one year, and that year he shared the kingdom with another king. And one king, good for him, he ruled for seven whole days. That's great. Good for him. Uh, really successful uh, uh, time as king there. Um, this is a lot of Shakespearean things going on. There's a lot of literal backstabbing, a lot of uh, uh, murder replacing the family, murder replacing the family. And so things here in Israel are not going that great. And that's where we arrive here. We are at the good stuff, if you will. We have arrived at King Ahab and his infamous wife, Jezebel. Okay? 
Jezebel. Jezebel is a murderous pagan. The author of First and Second Kings does not care for Jezebel. And that's saying it nicely. Uh, she, as we will read over the next several weeks, she wields her power with cruelty. She's not a kind lady. She is a lady that uh, has a lot of bitterness and anger and rage in her heart, and she takes it out on God's people. So this morning, we are looking at Elijah, his first interaction, kind of burst into the scene here in 1 Kings 17. And so the question is then, where is this sermon going? Last several weeks, I feel like I've attempted to give us some practical things to do. Uh, how, the question would be, how do we live as if this passage is true? Uh, and that would be called application. Today, uh, the sermon's a little different. In a sense, this sermon is really more of a hymn of praise. And so uh, this morning, we're going to hear about truths of who God is. And what we're being asked by this passage of Scripture is to believe. We're going to hear about the power of God and how He demonstrates it. And what we're going to be asked to do at the end is to simply trust and believe that He is powerful, that He's good. So let's see what the Lord has for us. That's That's where we're heading. Um, this passage of Scripture in 1 Kings 17 has three stories, three events. Uh, they all uh, entail Elijah. Some of them have Ahab, and two of them have this widow from Zarephath. And so um, they answer the question. They talk about God demonstrating His power. And so this passage, 1 Kings 17, really does give us uh, some clear direction in answering the question, how does God demonstrate His power? And so uh, that's the question we're going to answer this morning with the majority of the content from this sermon. Let's get started. How does God demonstrate His power? First of all, we should understand the truth that God demonstrates His power at times in obvious ways. I think one of the more obvious ways for all of the world is creation. Creation. If you look outside, I'm looking outside right now at the forest behind our church, uh, you can see in creation the details, the grandeur of creation, the very power of God. I was thinking about uh, when I've experienced that in my life. And when I was in college, uh, some of my friends and I uh, from Ohio, we decided we were going to go to the Rocky Mountains and hike for a week. We were going to go up into the mountains and hike. So what did we do? We bought all the equipment that we needed. We didn't train a lick, and we drove 24 straight hours out to Colorado. We spent the night, and then the first day, having lived in Ohio for a good time, it's at basically zero sea level, we went straight to 12,000 feet, and camped at Bluebird Lake in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I'll tell you, um, the experience of hypoxia is awful. (laughs) Headaches, uh, getting sick every 10 feet, that part was not good. That part did not demonstrate the grandeur of God. It it demonstrated my stupidity. But uh, that time, and, and if you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. That first moment you begin to drive into the Rocky Mountains, And the cliffs on each side of this road that now feels kind of measly and and small, the cliffs get bigger and bigger. The mountains get grander and grander. There's more green, more snow, more scenery. And and you can't really recreate that experience. You can't do it. The first time you see it, the first time you experience it, it's incredible. You can't help but see the obvious power of God to build these natural structures from his imagination and from his word. Another experience I think maybe some of you have had is when you're at the beach and and the ocean just goes on and on forever. There's nothing you can do to stop the waves. There's nothing you can do to stop the breeze or the storm. Which brings me to 
the other way that God demonstrates very obviously to all the world his power, and it has to do with what's happening in 1 Kings 17. So, uh, for some context here, Ahab has essentially turned uh, the state religion of Israel into worship of Baal. He's He's a false god. He's a god of fertility, specifically the fertility of the earth. And so Baal is the god of the weather. This is important to understand, and it makes complete sense when we see what happens next. So Ahab, because his wife comes from Sidon, which we just heard about, she comes from this country from the north. She is a Baal worshiper. She brings Baal with her, and they set up a temple and prophets and priests for Baal, and it becomes the official state religion, the god of the weather. And so they are worshiping this god who claims to control rain, to control crops, to control all the things that that give the ground its uh, vitality. And so then we have in 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah bursting onto the scene. This is the very first time we hear about Elijah. And it says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, you know the one, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What is happening? God, in His mercy, is demonstrating for everyone to see, righteous and wicked alike, that He is the living God and that Baal is the dead one, the false God. He's saying, okay, you worship Baal to control the weather. I'm going to show you that I, in fact, the living God, control the weather. This is just like what happened in Egypt. Remember, the pl- each plague in Egypt was, for God, was at its base purpose for God to show that the gods of Egypt had nothing on Him. They were false. He was real. He could undo the things that were ascribed to these idols. So this is very similar to that. God is saying, listen, you think Baal controls the rain? We'll see about that. He's demonstrating His power over this lesser God. I think it's helpful to remember that this is mercy. The drought is mercy. What would be more merciful to continue to let the ground be fertile and let people worship the wrong god no and 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 again a a different god a different god of different character would have maybe started over with a new people god didn't do either one of those things instead he chose a way that would demonstrate his realness his truth his power so the drought was brought onto the land as a demonstration of god's power I think it's important right now to just pause and, 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 and bring ourselves out of the land of Egypt, where our minds hopefully are, and to right now. God is still doing this. God is still demonstrating His power through calamity, through natural disaster. Julie and I just moved from Florida a couple years ago, and if you have ever been in the path of a hurricane, the uncertainty, the power, the destruction of it all, it it raises your fear. It makes you feel completely helpless. All you can do is hunker down. Even the spaghetti models don't quite know exactly where it will land. It's all in the hand of God. Similar to when I'm sure it snows here. Now I'm from up north, so snow doesn't necessarily phase me, but from what I understand, when it snows down here in the south, we feel helpless. We don't know what to do, right? And so God is demonstrating through the weather through bad weather, inclement weather, His power in obvious ways. Another way to think about this, this virus that's going around. God 
has made the entire world helpless <laughs> because of this little molecule, this little, little uh, microscopic guy called the coronavirus floating around. God's demonstrating His power right now, church. He is sovereign over this thing. God, this does not take God by surprise. This is a demonstration of our God's power. May we recognize it. It's worth noting that, that God provided for His people during this time. If you look at verse 6 of 1 Kings 17, you see that He sent Elijah out after this proclamation of the drought. He sent them out into the wilderness and He, he lived by a stream until it dried up. And what did God do? Evening and morning, He would bring him bread and meat. So this is the first a biblical account of a sandwich. How delicious. Uh, so, bread and meat. He brought, he brought it miraculously to Elijah. And then again, this widow from, from a, a, another place, God provided for her and her son and Elijah miraculously during the calamity. God does the same for us. God does the same for us. He provides for us what we need. So, God's power, first of all, is demonstrated in these obvious ways. And these these obvious ways instill both awe and fear. But that isn't the only way. And I love this. I focused on this portion of Scripture because I love what it demonstrates about God's power. I love, I love how it presents God's power being demonstrated. So, yes, these obvious, clear ways, creation, calamity in the world, natural disaster, certainly is a flexing of God's muscle. But here, in this passage, 8-16, through 16, God shows His power <clears throat> Excuse me, in quiet, <coughs> in quiet and unexpected ways. Quiet and unexpected ways. Fascinating. So, just reading this passage without the context, verse 9 go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. You think, oh, great, that's a cool place, it sounds like. Well, listen, this is so important. Where is Sidon? Sidon, remember, I just mentioned it briefly a moment ago, is the home kingdom of Jezebel. The Baal-worshipping kingdom. So, Zarephath is a city in the very middle of the coast of this, this pagan country, this godless country, this Baal-promoting place. And so what happens here is, is God sends Elijah out of Israel to this widow. This widow who lives there. We don't know how she lost her husband. Maybe it was the famine or the, the drought that, that took him. We don't know. All we know is that she was a widow. What that means in this context is she was marginalized. She couldn't work. She couldn't represent herself. And so she had a son, and she was uh, the only hope she had was that her son could grow and, and get work and, and support their family. And so this widow is marginalized, and she's in a terrible state. And yet, look at what these verses imply. The beginning of uh, verse 9 tells him to go there. The second part of verse 9 says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So, we don't know exactly how or exactly what's happening, but we do know that she is in some sense already connected with the God of Israel. We can see it too at the beginning of verse 12 when she responds to his request, which is a little uh, rude. He doesn't say please. He just says, bring me water, bring me food. Well, how does she respond? She doesn't say, who, who are you? She says, as the Lord your God lives. That word Lord, if you look at the text in your Bible, it should be all caps, but, but smaller. That means that the, the word there in the original language is Yahweh, the name of God. She is aware of the God of Israel, more than likely through this drought that has been brought. And as she says here, as the Lord your God lives, she knows that God is in control because Baal has been shut up and God is controlling the scenario of the weather. 
So God has had interactions with this widow in some sense, and He has somehow commanded her to expect Elijah and to be prepared to give him food. And so what's happening here is this, this really small thing, a little loaf of bread, a little bit of water, is really it's a sacrificial request. You see here in verse 12 at the end, What's happening? Why is she gathering sticks? She's gathering sticks to cook the last little bit of flour and oil that they have to, to put a little bit of food in their bellies and then to resign themselves to starve to death. That's what's happening in this scenario. This widow and her son have resolved, we have no hope. We have nothing left. Let's cook the last little bit of food that we have and then let's die. Die together. And so, this small act as it looks, is such a huge act of faith. It's going to require God's provision for her to do this thing for Elijah and do just the thing she wants to do, which is eat a little bit and then resolve herself to passing away. But what did God do? He did a miraculous thing. He gave her a, a, a barrel of unending flour and a, a bucket of unending oil. And, and what I want to focus on here is, is how quietly God did this. The only reason we know about this there was no fanfare. The city didn't rejoice. The only reason we know about this is that Elijah or one of his companions wrote about it. And we had it in a written record. And so what we have here is God very quietly demonstrating his power to this far-off widow from a pagan country. God demonstrates his power, I think, even more often than the, the loud bullhorn of creation in our lives in special ways in very quiet in a very quiet manner. If you want to observe this, I really recommend watching God answer your children's prayers. I recommend that. Uh, we try to keep track of that in our home, and we, we pass and fail that all the time, but when you really take a look at it, and you see God answer these simple, childish prayers, you can see that God is attentive, and He has power, and He wants to, to provide for His children. It's quite an experience. If you don't do it now, start doing it. Record what your children pray and watch God answer those prayers. Now, don't use them to, to, for your own devices like, hey, Johnny, pray for something. No, watch them have genuine times of need. Go to God and watch God provide for that. So God did this quietly. But he also did something that was just unexpected. It was unpredictable. I love when God is unpredictable because it shows us that he is bigger than our, our own minds. He's bigger than something we could have created. Think about this. Quietly and subtly, God redeems a widow in a pagan nation. <laughs> it's so beautiful. There's this town very far from Israel in the middle, the, literally the middle of a pagan nation, and there's this widow marginalized by her society who knows the name of Yahweh and trusts Him. Listen, if that doesn't inspire hope that there is unity in Christ and that the only unity that, that can really occur is in Christ. I don't know what else to give you as far as evidence. God does this unexpected think, thing. And, and what we should learn from it is this. No one is outside the loving touch of God's saving grace. Nobody. God saves people who are different than us. They look different than us. They have different sins than we do. They come from different places than we do. They speak different languages. God saves them. God loves variety. And I was thinking as I was 
reading this part of the passage and kind of just basking in the idea that he, he did this cool thing with a, a lady that was an Israelite. She's outside the chosen people. He saved her. And I was thinking, God loves variety. And I was thinking about mosaics. And so listen to the technical definition of a, a, a piece of mosaic art. A singular, coherent shape made up of smaller, regular, or irregular pieces. And so in God's mosaic of historic redemption, right? The, the history of redemption, God and His painting of His family or in, the, in the, the sculpture of His family, in the artwork of His family, there's this one irregular piece, a widow from Zarephath, that makes the entire picture beautiful. And in fact, I would say, it, it, the, the analogy breaks down, None of us are regular pieces. We're all irregular pieces. But you get the idea. God puts the unexpected piece and it adds simply to the beauty of the whole picture. And so God demonstrates His power in, in obvious, clear ways. He's shouting his, his power at the world through creation and through calamity. He's also demonstrating power uh, through, through the subtle ways in our lives, the quiet ways in our life. The third story gives us a point that's the hardest one to make today. Um, in, in verse 17 and following, the, the widow's son dies. The widow's son dies. We're not sure how it says that he fell down with an illness. We're not sure what that illness was, but he, he dies. And there's this tragedy that we have to deal with in the passage. And so this third point, again, it's the hardest one to make of the three. So God demonstrates his power in obvious ways, he demonstrates his power in quiet and unexpected ways. But thirdly, God demonstrates his power through personal difficulty. God demonstrates his power through personal difficulty. The, the death of this boy is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Listen to the reaction of Elijah and the widow. Okay, listen to their reactions. This is how we know it's a tragedy. So uh, Elijah finds out that the boy has passed away. And he, he finds out when he visits the widow, and so here's what the widow says to him. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have, come to me, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? What is she saying? Are you remembering that I was a Baal worshiper? Are you trying to rub my face in it and take my son away from me? And what's the prophet's response? It's not, listen, you don't understand. God is good. He'll help. No, what is, watch the response of Elijah in tune with this widow's response. So Elijah takes the boy, and here's what he says to God. And he, said to the, he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? They are not doubting whether God exists or not. I was reading this week on this topic of loss and, and grief, and, and one author says that that's actually not the worst conclusion to arrive at. It's actually an easy conclusion to just kind of wipe God out of your mind. Say, well, he must not exist. He said, no, that the harder thing, the harder conclusion is that God exists, but he's not as good as you thought he was. And that's what I think we see here. We have two people who have experienced miracles. The drought is a miracle. The, the never-ending flour and oil are miracles. And yet, when a tragedy occurs, they have questions. Is God still good? And, and I, I, I put a spotlight on that because I want you to hear this. It's normal and natural to feel those things, to thrash about in tragedy. Tragedy brings real deep pain. And to say, oh, God is good, that's candy coating. 
That's not honest emotions. And what is fantastic is God allows us to feel pain. God allows us to have those strong emotional responses when tragedy happens. Now in this story, Elijah prays a prayer and he does some things and the boy comes back to life. That's what happens in this story. But in real life, what's, what's the reality? What's, what's the reality with tragedy? We don't always get to experience that outcome. God doesn't always heal right away or ever. God doesn't always answer yes to every prayer. I was talking with a gentleman this week who's going through a, a tragedy. I did not ask if I could share his name, so I won't. But uh, we were talking about how things were going and how he was feeling. And uh, he said this, I feel suspended in helplessness. I feel suspended in helplessness. What an insightful description, isn't that? What an insightful description. I feel suspended in helplessness. And I, I was reminded of the quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. Here's what he says about pain. The first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well. So think about this. As we do our lives and things are going okay, we tend to rest in this idea that maybe everything's peachy keen. Maybe we think everything's okay. Maybe everything's going to be good forever. And so we have this structure built up that kind of supports us, that everything's good. And what he's saying is pain, the first thing it does is it shatters that idea. Not Everything's not okay. When tragedy occurs, we immediately understand everything is not okay. And what's the second operation? The second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is 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 our own, uh, that what we have, sorry, the second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad, is not our own and not good enough for us. And not enough for us, sorry. Well, I really butchered that. I apologize, CS. You're rolling around in your grave. The idea is this. So the, the idea that life is peachy keen, it goes away. We know when tragedy strikes, not everything's okay. But the second thing that it shatters is that we have enough to deal with it that we have enough inside of us, the resources, to handle the pain. Now, from a theological, scriptural perspective, pain shouldn't cause us to doubt God. That's where I'm getting at with this. Pain shouldn't cause us to doubt God. Rather, it should drive us to trust in Him more. It should drive us to realize, I don't have the resources to handle this, and life is not good. I need to go somewhere else to find comfort. I need to go somewhere else to find healing and restoration of my heart. And so, while in this scenario, in 1 Kings 17, God reveals His power through healing the boy, God always reveals His power, but it's not always through healing. God knows what we need, and God has the power to give it to us. And what we need most of all is an increased trust in Him. So it's inaccurate to say that when God doesn't heal, or it's only through healing that God demonstrates His power, that's just not true. I read a devotional uh, geared towards pastors by a guy named Neil T. Anderson, and uh, just so happens that this week, here's one of the, the, the quotes from the devotional that I read this week. Revival, meaning uh, the, the, the um, coming back to God, is not the roof blowing off, meaning our life going so well that we're blowing the roof off of things, success. Where is it? It's in the floor caving in. 
When the floor falls on our own plans, resources, and good intentions, we, be, we can begin to trust in God's resources. Grace flows downhill and meets us at our point of need. It is the very demonstration of God's power that we can feel like we are suspended in helplessness. Suspended in helplessness is a moment where God shows up and reveals His power. God uses difficulty, you see, to draw us closer to Him. The impossibility of being drawn closer is the act of power. We can't get closer to God. It's impossible because of our sin. And yet God miraculously does it. Here's the reality. (laughs) You're going to love this. In this life, and children, you can listen to this too, in this life, we will know pain. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Well, that's just great, Ransom. Thanks so much. Happy Sunday. But, this is an important one, but pain and death are overcome. Where is the place that pain doesn't exist? Where is the place that death is defeated? Where is the place where our tears will be permanently wiped off our faces? and out of our eyes. In eternity, where? With Jesus Christ. That's what we are promised. Yes, we will suffer now. Yes, we will go through tribulation and tragedy now. We have to expect it. But because of the promise and the work and the salvation of Jesus Christ that He offers us, there is something better waiting for us. And What I want to draw our attention to is how is it possible that we could go to such a place? How is it possible that we could take part in such a thing as painless, sinless, no suffering, tearless eternity? How did that happen? You see, it happened by God making himself human. You understand what that means? God had to smell what humans smell like. (laughs) It wasn't good in the first century Israel in the desert, I tell you that. God had to face undeserved ridicule. God had to see and feel his own friends die, and he wept over it. And I want you to understand the relevance of what I'm about to say. I want you to understand the relevance of this. Jesus died at the hands of the justice system of his day. He was brutalized for a crime he did not commit. He was wrongly accused in murder. I want you to understand... Jesus died on the cross of suffocation. That's what happens when they dislocate your shoulders and nail you to a cross. You can't catch your breath. You slowly die of exposure and suffocation. And worse than all of that, he endured separation from his father as if he had done all the awful things that we actually do. So how have we won a place that that there is no suffering, that there is no death, there is no tragedy, there is no pain? God submitted himself to the uttermost of all of those things as a human in Jesus Christ. And of course, praise the Lord, there's the resurrection that defeats all those things. It's only through the resurrection, his experience of those going through that valley and then coming out the other side in victory 
that we can partake in a thing that avoids all of those things for eternity. Now these truths are not meant to be a guilt trip. The, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, remind each other of these things for encouragement. Encouragement. And so here's what I want you to understand. There's two things, really. God understands you. In your time of hurt, God understands you. He has literally felt the way you feel. God has literally felt the things you feel. Listen, sometimes as I walk with people through pain, that's one of the parts of the job. It's, it's not fun, but it is a privilege to do. Uh, and this is rare, but sometimes when you're walking with people through pain, you, you can get this response. Listen, Ransom, you just don't get it. You haven't lived my life. You can't understand what I'm going through. Again, it's rare, but sometimes that, that statement is made. And uh, yes, that's correct. <laughs> I know. I, I, I am a, I'm a frail human, and there's a lot that I don't get. There's a lot. And so in those moments, I do my best. But, but that's beside the point. I may not get it just because I haven't lived it. And, and that I maybe can't understand it doesn't mean that God doesn't. You understand God lived a life of loss as a human. Jesus Christ lived a life of sacrifice and tragedy and hurt and pain and discomfort. He lived it. And in fact, I would say he was so much more of a human than we were, he understands it better than we do, which leads me to the second point that I want to make. Listen, pain not only... We, we can understand that God knows us and He knows what we're going through. Pain actually is the reverse. It's not that God doesn't understand us. Pain helps us understand God and become more like Christ. It's the reverse of that. As we go through pain, God uses those things to make us more like Christ. Think about this. Is not sanctification one of the more quiet ways God demonstrates His power? Being more like Christ is something we can't be. It's impossible. I can't pull up my bootstraps and be like Jesus. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And so God, through His miraculous leading of the Holy Spirit, what does He do? Through trial, tribulation in this life, He slowly makes us more like something we can't be like. That's His power. And so we, as we undergo pain and tragedy, we can understand our God better, who submitted Himself to these things willingly, who has been where you have been, who walks with you now. And so we should not say, God, you don't understand. We should say, God, help me to understand you. What's the takeaway this morning? My encouragement is this, observe the grandeur of the created world. Get out there. Look at the trees. Look at the birds. Look at the, all the things, right? Look at how beautiful it is, how complex it is, how it all fits together so neatly. Praise the name of God for His demonstration of creative power. Observe God's power in this time. Folks, we keep saying it's unprecedented. This is crazy. It's unusual. It's never happened before. Listen, we have an opportunity to, to understand the power of God through this pandemic. It may not happen again, Lord willing, 
But while we live through it, may we take advantage of it and observe the power and provision of God in it. We need to observe the little blessings that God demonstrates to us in our lives. I think we blow past them most of the time. We miss them. We don't stop and look for them. And God, every day, every hour, is demonstrating His power in your life in quiet and unexpected ways. And as we do that, as we go through even tragedy and trial, we need to place our trust in a good God. In a good God that knows us, that cares for us, and is capable. That's who God is. God is always demonstrating His power to us. In all those things I mentioned, He's saying, Trust me. Trust me. I am sufficient. I am with you. I am good. I have power. I am living. I am real. I am relevant. And the question is, will we affirm that or not? Will we affirm that that is true? When the, all this is said and done, that the widow gets her son back, Here's what she declares in verse 24 of 1 Kings 17. Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Truth. God knows. God cares. God has power. Trust Him. He is true. Now my hope each week is there's someone listening who has either never trusted God in this way before, you've never put your trust in anyone but yourself or some other person, you've never given your life to Christ, or maybe you're someone this morning who needs to renew that. You lost your trust in God. And the question would then be, well, how do I do that? Either one of those. How do I do that? You'll hear this from me. It is the tenet of every religion, unless it's a delusional one, that suffering is the common human experience. That, that's the problem in every religion, okay? But the Christian teaching is that in order to address that issue of suffering, God had to become human. God became human to address sin. So in the Christian religion, in the teachings of Scripture, God didn't inoculate himself from human suffering and say, come to me, or, or pretend it wasn't real. He entered into it. He didn't just dip his toe. He plunged into human suffering. He came and did the very thing that we were doing. He came to live the thing he needed to conquer. And so it wasn't out of curiosity. And his suffering wasn't meaningless like a big science experiment. No, it won a victory. And so God, by enduring suffering, even death on a cross, and then coming back to life, here's what he did. In this hand is sin, death, and pain. Okay? That's what, and, and his resurrection crushed it. It crushed it. It is defeated. It is powerless. And what the Bible teaches that in this life, while sufferings go on, every day that we suffer, suffering's days are numbered. Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, it's going to be all those things we mentioned before. There will be no more sin. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. 
There will be more, no more death. And we can partake in that thing, that victory, by simply believing that Jesus did the thing that I just mentioned, that he came to this earth. He lived the life of a human. That he suffered those things. He suffered even death on a cross. For you and for me, because we deserved that death from our sin, he in his sinless state suffered that death. And then he rose again in victory on the third day. If you believe those things, that those things are for you, you will be with Christ in eternity. Now what I want you to hear is that this teaching does not scotch guard you from pain and hurt in this life. Okay? That's not how it works. In fact, it may intensify it, but here's what, what we have that others don't. We have our eyes set on a victory. We have our eyes set on a hope that is true and exists. We have one who walks through these things with us now and one who undoes those things for eternity later. Let me pray for us. God, you are great. You are powerful. I pray even now, as I pray this prayer on a Thursday afternoon and it broadcast out on a Sunday, that you would put on all of our hearts, mine included, the, the weight of your power. It is grand. It is, it is big. It's huge. Your power is beyond comprehension. And yet we treat you so many times as a peon, answering to our requests, answering to our desires, and yet you are the God that lives. You demonstrate your power daily in grand and quiet and unexpected ways and even in our tragedy. I pray, Lord, you would make your power real to us. We don't have to pray that it would come. It's already here. I pray that we would see it more and praise your name for it. Lord, I pray for our nation. I pray for our world. I pray that you would heal us in all the ways we need to be healed. <laughs> Lord, I pray that Christians around the world would react to the difficulties in front of them by searching the scriptures and living as if the things that are true about you are true. And this morning I ask that you in our hearts affirm your power. And so we pray to a powerful God the Father, knowing that our words are interpreted by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.